you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. I am your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my good friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered with the world's most comprehensive refund protection product. To find out how you and your organization can partner with Booking Protect to deliver world-class customer service, a better, more personalized buying experience, and how you can generate a new stream of revenue for your organization, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that email address is, or the web address is www.bookingprotect.com. Are you going to see us at Intex in New York City on January 20th to 23rd? You can find me. You can find Simon and Kat. We're going to be at the Booking Protect booth. And you're going to want to come to New York because this is the first time in 26 years that Intex will be in New York City at the Hilton. They Such a big event that they had to add an extra day. Um, if you go to the Intex.org website, you're going to see my mug plastered right there i'm doing a couple talks um leading a couple sessions it's going to be a great chance to connect with me simon cat uh my buddy danny frank who is the one of the chairs of the committee uh kyle wright from schubert organization you're going to see great people like my friends like Derek palmer i know angela higgins from the tpc in australia is coming uh make sure you get your tickets to ntix by visiting ntix.org go there get your tickets today have you signed up for my new newsletter, Talking Tickets, five top stories from the world of tickets from the week that was with a quick analysis by me. My team pulls together this thing every week. It's great. Uh, you can get that by visiting my website, DaveWakeman.com, and clicking on the links that says Get Talking Tickets. I'm going to be doing a giveaway with some tickets to intakes, some registrations for the conference, I believe. Um, so you want to get signed up for talking tickets so you can find out how you can win those tickets. My guest today is back for round two. It's Sam Sherman from Broker Genius. Um, we had a nice conversation um, that was a little bit different than our first time because we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, we talked about the value we talked about the Viagogo StubHub deal. We talked about new breeds of brokers. We talked about data and protection of data. We talked about uh, consolidation and its impact on the primary market and the secondary market. We talked about the future of the ticket market. We talked about uh, pricing. We talked about uh, secondary to secondary sales. We talked about all kinds of stuff. Um, it's really great conversation. This is a bit different than the first time we chatted. Um, it's kind of covers a whole lot of different territory, right? Uh, so I think you're going to dig this conversation with Sam Sherman from Broker Genius on the Business of Fun podcast. All right. I want to welcome back Sam Sherman from Broker Genius to the Business of Fun podcast. Sam, how's it going, man? Doing well, Dave. How are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm great. I told you before, uh, which if anybody listened to the Tammy Gall episode, I had the flu or something, and I have been knocked out, but I'm good now, you, uh, coming through strong. So hopefully we're going to have a good conversation to awesome. take advantage of all this new energy I have. Sounds good. <laughs> all right. Now, you've been here before, so um, we don't have to do all the introductory stuff. We can jump right into it. Um, sure. The first thing I want to ask you about is big news in the world of tickets. Uh, Viagogo bought StubHub last week, and this is the first time I've had a chance to talk to anybody about the purchase except for the BBC, which the link is going to be in the show notes for this. Um, sure. But give me your ideas on the, the Viagogo purchase of StubHub because I think that um, it's interesting. I do a lot of business 
in the U in Europe and the UK and all over the world. Uh, so I don't know if everybody's as well versed in Viagogo as they maybe need to be. But I want to hear your uh, your opinion on what the deal means to the secondary market. Sure, sure. So I think that it is the best case scenario that could possibly have happened to the secondary ticket market. Um, you know, back in 2012, before I started uh, Broker Genius, by chance, I um, I had been introduced to Eric Baker, who's the CEO of um, and founder of Viagogo, and of, of course also the, uh, the the original one of the co-founders of StubHub. And so um, we met and we got to talking, and um, I was very very close actually to uh, to, to joining Viagogo and working for uh, for Eric. Um, I, I got to know him a little bit during that time. Um, and, um, what I can tell you from what I remember, and obviously this is a long time ago, um, is that he really thinks like a, like a broker. He, he came up that way. He started Liquid Seats, if I remember correctly, was, was before StubHub back in like 1999. Um, and, uh, him and Jeff Fleur and, and, um, you know, there was, there was no question that he has a really, really good understanding of the secondary market from a broker point of view, obviously from a, from an exchange point of view, he's built two of the most successful ticket exchanges that have ever uh, been created. Um, and um, you know the the interesting thing, you know, we have an office in Barcelona. That's where our development um, actually takes takes place in Spain. So you know I travel to Europe a decent amount, and um, I think most people are aware that Viagogo is the dominant brand pretty much in every country outside of North America. Um, in, in Europe, um, and uh, and we, um, I, I think we're all very. Uh, it obviously remains to be seen, but I think there's a lot to look forward to. I think that for companies like uh, like Broker Genius and for for ticket brokers, um, the international opportunity I think is going to open up. And I think that um, you know I, I have a feeling, and we'll see that over the course of the next year or so, that uh, Viagogo is going to open up the international opportunity to U.S. brokers, who I, I think will, as as Viagogo gets you know their their bearings and learns more about the space, um, which I'm sure they know a lot about already, um, and how well capitalized a lot of ticket brokers are, and how and how well um, positioned they are to really grow that segment of the business. I think there's going to be an opportunity for ticket brokers to grow internationally. Brokers have tried to do that before. Um, it hasn't worked out that well. Um, but I think that that's one of the most exciting things for, for ticket brokers, I think, to look forward to is they talk about globalization. And a lot of people are thinking from an international brand, creating synergies, um, reducing some of the same, um, you know, some, some of the same activities and, and having a more efficient cost structure for the two companies. And that's definitely true. Uh, but I think that for, for brokers, um, you know, the ability to take positions in other markets is something that I, I think has a lot of potential. Obviously, there's a lot of laws um, internationally in Europe in, in particular um, that are, are going to be somewhat of a barrier. But I do think that there is a real opportunity there um, to open up that market. And I think that with the technology that uh, that StubHub has um, already in both point of sale and in, in processing technology and capabilities, and then of course all the third parties that exist in in the in the space. Uh, that's something that that can be leveraged to allow brokers to um, to grow their businesses internationally and vice versa. So I think that the globalization here applies also to the entrance into the participants um, in the t- in the ticket resale space, and um, and that's something that I think is is uh, you know. Uh, that I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out over the course of the next year. 
Um, and, and I think that again, from knowing Eric a little bit, I haven't spoken to him, you know, since that time. Um, he, he's a really, really smart guy, um, knows what he's doing and, and, um, I think comes to this with a broker centric uh, approach. Obviously, I'm sure that they're going to be working with content rights holders too, of course, but I do think that this is going to be a very good thing for, uh, for ticket brokers. Yeah. Well, there's a couple things that probably strike me and I can hear my inbox blowing up right now, even as we haven't even finished recording the podcast now, because uh, all these people that I know around the world are going to be emailing me going, Viagogo is awful. They're, 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 they're so bad. They're, they're, they're terrible for consumers. And that's going to be, to me, going to be one of the biggest challenges that they're going to face is, are they going to be a lot more customer friendly, like, StubHub and some of the other platforms are in the States, or are they going to continue kind of their scorched earth pattern that they have <laughs> internationally? That's one question. But the other thing you brought up, or actually you brought up a couple of good points. The second important point that you brought up was the idea of uh, being broker centric, which I don't necessarily um, know if everybody's going to view that as being a positive for the industry, but that's, you know, that that's, we can talk about that. Uh, but then the third thing is, is that I think, the international and the global globalization of the secondary market, at least selfishly, would be great for me because I've often said that the secondary market can be a very valuable partner. I even said it on the BBC again the other day um, if it's done wisely. But I think the problem is education. Um, so sure. I'm I'm all about this. But I want to touch. I want to ask you a little bit about you know some of the barriers that they're going to face because you talked about a lot of the positives, but at the same time, if there's a, a bunch of positives, what are some of the negative aspects of the deal? Um, you know, and specifically, you know, the Viagogo name may be the biggest in the international markets, but it's also comes with it a certain um, negative image. Sure. And I, I, I think that you take the, the, the positive sides for each one of the companies and StubHub has just a fantastic name for consumers. And I think that's one of the biggest assets that um, that they were buying. Um, so I think that, that that how the branding shakes up or takes uh, takes shape over the next year to two years post the deal, um, do, does StubHub retain that StubHub name in North America? Um, you know, obviously StubHub has a presence in the UK and they, they've got some European presence. What happens to, to that? Is it going to be Viagogo there and it's, and it's basically status quo or not? But I do think that leveraging StubHub's, um, you know, the way that they've been able to create a very consumer-centric brand um, and, and a very positive brand is something that's going to help Viagogo. And I think that um, probably, you know, I, I would assume, again, I'm not on the inside of this deal, that they're going to take some time to really learn um, the stuff of business and what they do well and what their strongest assets are, and that they'll, they'll, they'll learn hands-on um, the, the customer-centric approach, which I think they'll probably be able to, uh, to benefit a lot from. So I do think that's something that, that can help um, be a go-go in this acquisition. Yeah, and it kind of opens the door to something that we were talking about a little bit before uh, we started recording, which is kind of um, maybe brokers or just people in general are nervous about the future of the market, right? And I know that depending on where you sit, and I think everybody knows probably both of our points of view on this, but if not, I'll, sure. we can both share them in a second. Um, the first thing is like, is there a need for brokers? Um, which I know that, uh, you know, it's going to be no secret that you're going to say, yes, there is a need for brokers. And I've probably been pretty vocal about my 
saying that I think there's a definite role for brokers. Um, but looking at it through the lens of this huge acquisition and some of the actions that have been taken by the primary market, uh, you know, or even some of the actions being taken internationally, you know, where do you see the need for brokers in the world today? And, you know, what kind of value do they provide? Because Recently, I had Patrick Ryan on a couple months, a couple weeks, a couple months back now, and we talked a lot about the value. So I want to, I'd be curious to hear your opinion about the value of a broker in the ticket ecosystem now, especially sure. in light of all this stuff. Sure. And, and, you know, I know, I know Patrick well. He's actually a really good, really good guy. Him, him and Nick, um, before they were Eventelect, when they were, um, the ticket experience, they were, they were like our first beta customer. Um, and, um, we had a, we had a really close relationship and we still, you know, keep in touch a little bit now and then obviously different sides of the business, but, uh, you know, a lot of people have strong opinions there because of consolidation and, and certainly understand that. But, um, but, but I, I do have a lot of respect and, uh, for, for Patrick. Um, but in any case, um, in terms of like, you know, my, my perspective on, you know, the future of the industry and, and the role that the ticket brokers, um, play, I think that there are many reasons why brokers will continue to serve a role within the ticket landscape. And, and, you know, you can go through, through several, um, that I think are not going to change. But number one, brand protection for artists and teams. I, I don't think that that changes that much. I think that, um, you know, whether you're, uh, the New York Yankees, whether you are Taylor Swift, whatever brand you carry, you care a lot about what the what consumers think about your brand. In fact, a lot of a lot of those companies are spending a lot of money right now on NLP, natural language processing, um, for social media to be able to gauge what the sentiment for their brands are. And I, I know a little bit about that because we're doing that as we expand our technology to include that as well. Um, but the the point is that for for a lot of the brands, um, they are they're, they're not going to put um, uh, their their inventory out at get in prices that they think would be harmful for their brand, and they'd rather the brokers you know capture some of the margin there and let the um, let the public's perception be that these are ticket brokers. Um, and I think that that that's something that still exists to a large degree today. Um, there could be some some you know change there with you know. As consumers go to Ticketmaster and are looking at blue dots and red dots and not really paying all that much attention to what's primary and secondary, that could change that a little bit. You know, it's, it's been a while and it hasn't. So um, that's why I think it's going to be a while longer. But that that need of brand protection, I think, still is intact. Um, the second, in terms of laying off risk, listen, you know, they're, they're not in the the, um, the sports teams, the, the content rights holders are not necessarily in the business of capturing every single penny on, on, on the ticket that they sell. Certainly, they don't want to be leaving 50% on the table. But I think that there is a large sentiment out there that says, you know what, if you can provide value to me by, number one, having the operation, number two, pricing it efficiently, number three, laying off the risk for me, there's a lot of reasons there that the team still find value with the brokers. And, and so that, I think, still exists. Um, the, in, in the case of brokers and the case of, of, of an on sale or tickets being sold at the beginning of the season, there's a lot of value of cash in hand and being able to, uh, to, to get that money right away. And brokers are certainly helpful in that area versus, you know, only capturing, um, their, um, their money back over time. So time value of money is another element. 
Um, certainly ineffective pricing is a big reason. Um, now that certainly can change with dynamic pricing and has changed to a large degree with dynamic pricing on the primary market. Um, but of course, brokers are still able to capture a lot of margin and we're still seeing that overall our segment of brokers continue to grow year over year and margins, while they're shrinking in a lot of categories, they remain strong in other categories. So whereas sports in certain, certain sports have gone down a lot over the last year, overall our margins for brokers have actually maintained over the last couple of years and our clients have grown by 7% year over year, even though there are still a lot of clients that have shrunk. But overall, from our customer base, which right now represents about $2.2 billion worth of sales per year, there is overall growth. And again, that's in the face of everything. So I, I still think that that there is um, a clear need for uh, for brokers in those areas. And, and the, then finally, um, contractual obligations, while that can change, there's a lot of restrictions that content rights holders have right now to distribute their inventory, even if they had pricing, even if they had operational help, even if they were not concerned about laying off the risk. They still have contractual obligations a lot of times not to be able to sell on all of the various different exchanges. And there are so many exchanges that play a large, a very important role in the marketplace right now between, you know, StubHub, Vivid Seats, Ticketmaster, Ticket Network, Seeky, TickPick, GameTime, all of these. And, and, you know, all of these companies in different markets play, play a really important role. And, um, you know, obviously the, the big four or five are a huge chunk of the market. And in fact, you know, the exchanges, the retail exchanges account for 93% of all tickets that sell amongst our clients base. So, so of those top nine exchanges, that's 93% of all the tickets and nobody has more than a 35% market share. So for those reasons and, and the importance of distribution, um, I think it's very, very important that, um, that, you know, the, the distribution happens on all the exchanges. And if there's contractual reasons why they can't, that's another reasons why uh, brokers will continue um, and need to continue to exist. Um, so for all those reasons, I think that while there's certainly, you know, plenty of things to be concerned about, there's also plenty of reasons to think that there is uh, longevity for the next number of years uh, for, for ticket brokers. I think the, the, the ideas that you listed, you gave for reasons for the brokers to still exist, those would be very similar to what I would give. I mean, with your number one about the brand protection being the most important. I would add one more too, which is that, um, you need the brokers and you need the platforms in the secondary market also because they have developed a better understanding of digital marketing. And it's something that would be expensive, um, and not necessarily guaranteed to be successful if a team or an organization started taking it over right now. Um, sure. You know, and I, and I, and I would put that up there probably as the number two thing right after the brand protection, because I mean, if you start throwing out $5 tickets and it's not coming through the secondary market, um, it gets ugly fast. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, and even on the secondary market, there's challenges, you know, when, when the tickets are going down, uh, to like, you know, a buck or two, but that's a different scenario altogether. And one that like, um, you know, can be tackled with marketing, but the pricing alone, the commoditization thing, you, you got to be careful of because if not, you really, you really are screwed. Um, I mean, that, but that's just me. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I think you, you touched on a point there of like from from a, a pricing perspective, and and brokers also understanding how to price better. Um, you know, they they have a feel for the market, obviously leveraging technology as well. 
Um, but that's definitely an important piece. I, I think that, you know, the distribution piece for the exchanges, that's something that you don't necessarily need brokers for um, because the teams, if they didn't have the contractual restrictions, would be able to distribute through all of the exchanges that you mentioned that are already doing a great job of digital marketing. But I, I, I do think that the contractual restrictions in many cases are um, a reason that, that brokers need to service being the ones to deliver the content to those exchanges. On the pricing side, you know, that's something that the, the the different brands, um, sports teams in particular, uh, so content rights holders are more focused on making sure that they're protecting their product. And um, that's one of the reasons that there has been a lot more consolidation, for example, in sports, is making sure that their tickets are not undervalued and that you have certain parameters, including certain floors for different types of games and different inventory types, um, which has, you know, not worked out perfectly, but it's, it's certainly made a difference in many markets. And I, but beyond that, I think that it's more about that, that market efficiency on the secondary market is so close to perfect that it's the letting the laws of supply and demand take shape in a, in a zero sum game. Because at the end of the day, tickets are a commodity and we see that over and over again. And, you know, you can put protections in place to allow to restrict tickets from falling to a certain price point, And that just means that you're going to eat more inventory. It's going to it's going to be captured somewhere. And so I think that um, we're the, the, the content rights holders, I think, are getting more educated right now is how much inventory really can can be healthy to move for a particular artist for a particular event. Um, and then there's also the element of pricing. And, and we've spoken, David, on past podcasts that in the airline industry, when's the last time you ever saw an airline ticket, you know, go down in price and tank as it got closer to the flight? Almost never, right? You know, at the end of the day, um, you know, they're they're able to price their inventory in a way where consumers are trained to buy their tickets in advance. And if you wait, you're going to pay more money. And, you know, the, the secondary market for brokers that are taking inventory risk, then they're they're going to want to sell the ticket for whatever they can capture because they have no incentive if they're not a consolidator or they're not working directly with the team to eat that seat. Um, but I think that that goes along to understanding pricing and data much better to understand where in the life cycle of a ticket inventory needs to be priced. And so it, it makes a huge difference. Even if 10 points more of a market move from 150 days or from the, from the public on sale until 30 days to the event, if you can move 10 points more of inventory during that period, that thinning out of supply makes a huge difference in the last 30 days to the event, leading to much less price compression and, and tickets, you know, just tanking in those, in those final uh, days and weeks to the event. Um, so I think that, that there, that in general, the, um, the content rights holders are understanding that a lot more and brokers are, are understanding that a lot more. And, and overall, that has made the markets healthier as a result. Well, I hope so. And you talked you talk about the sports tickets kind of tanking and then you brought opened up data and then you brought opened up the fact that uh, your point of view is that a ticket is a commodity. And I would my, my point of view would be that in the world we live in now, a ticket is a commodity. And I would say that it's been due to a combination of um, uh, not understanding the data, right, or using the data properly. Um, you maybe are forgetting how to do the basics of marketing pretty well, especially on the team side. Um, and 
and it is like, you know, just having transparency in the market from the number of seats, which mm-hmm. kind of brings me around to this idea, right? Yeah, you know, how do we kind of turn the market around and so we can train people to buy tickets earlier so that we don't have this race to the bottom at the end and so that it, you know, it, we, we don't have so much commodity pricing, right? So that everything's just racing down to pennies on the dollar of what it was before. So, I mean, and hopefully I, there's a data answer because I, 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 I'm curious because I've been trying to show people how to use data better lately. And that's sort of where I'm trying to go with this, you know, sure. full transparency. Sure. I mean, that's, listen, I, I, I agree with you. And, that, you know, for, for us, we certainly feel the same way. That's, that's why we put out Atlas, which is the first uh, version of our data product that we envision becoming like the Bloomberg terminal for event ticketing. Um, and we're continuing to add to that and, and you know, continuing to get broker feedback. As, so that, that's certainly something that we want to do is, is educate people and give them the data access to data that they need to make better decisions. Um, in terms of, you know, tickets or, or events, um, really uh, the, the problem of events taking, if you have too much supply saturating the market, you do not have room for the market not to crash. The only way to do that is when you are protecting pricing, like where you have a consolidator with rules that you cannot move like a certain event under $40 get-ins or whatever the inventory type is. That's the only t- way that you can protect pricing um, to that degree. And again, if the market can't bear that, that means that you're going to have a lot of empty seats. And that's that's something that different teams will have a different perspective on how important are butts and seats, how important is it for the stadium to look full, to be full, for fans to get that experience. And that is a, a huge part, I think, of, of the of this uh, this topic, because it, it's a fundamental question of what happens over time if you don't create opportunities for tickets to be purchased at very low price points because of what we're talking about here. If you don't allow that, then there's a lot of diff- there's a lot of people when they're younger that wouldn't have the opportunity to go to a game, you know, to go to a ball game and to to create that that um, that experience and that connection with the team, and that has an effect in later on years down the road. Um, and I think t- people are starting to talk about that now, right? Um, but if you don't, if you just let the market play out, if inventory can just be bought completely freely, then I think there is an equilibrium because where brokers will start, brokers are pretty quick to learn, you know, when they made a bad purchase and when they buy season tickets for a team and they learn the market and they see that they're losing money, then if there's way too much saturation, which is leading them to lose money, they're not going to buy that the next year and the market will thin out. So in a, in a pure, you know, no restricted, non-restrictive market, that will play out. When you, when you have too much supply though, then for that period of time, for that event, then the market has no nowhere to go but down. I do think that as more and more fans are buying tickets now on the secondary market, and so there's a lot more demand be, you know, being generated from the secondary, then that's leading to more supply being able to, pur- to be purchased through those outlets, and that thins out the market too. Um, but ultimately, as long as the supply and demand you know, are, are close enough, then you will have stability and brokers that sell in that case, if they sell too early, then the brokers that sell late are going to capture, you know, more of the margin. Um, I still think it's, it's ends up being a zero sum game. It's just that where's the margin going to go? Is it going to go to empty seats by restricting it? Is it going to go to brokers that capture more margin because they sell at a more opportune time? That's, that's really how, how I look at that. 
Yeah, and and the part about if it's going to an empty seat, I look at that as sort of an expiring asset, right? And I think that, um, you know, every time you, you have an empty seat, you have a missed opportunity. Um, and that's sort of the way. But you, you brought up the idea of supply, right, and having too much supply in the market and then kind of finding a place where there's stability, right? And to me, that sounds like there's – which goes into the second part of the original question of marketing, right? And it seems to me that one of the ways that we can do a better job of moving these sports tickets, because sports tickets, have, you know, have really not been holding their value very well in a lot of not a lot of instances um, for the last several years, uh, is the need to be more effective at marketing. Um, you know, I think that um, really it just seems like a lot of people have forgotten some of the basics of, of just generating demand for what they're doing and that everything rides on this pendulum of hot or not. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to me, you know, and it, it probably is not necessarily in your wheelhouse as much, but you know, how do you help people or maybe it is, how do you help people understand that like part of the way that you, you, you stop the volatility of the pricing model is through better marketing and out and, and promotion and advertising effectively from the very start. So, I mean, it's a good question. I think that in general, from when you look at marketing, you have a question of awareness, which is of your target audience, how many people are aware that you can go to this event for this price, right? And then there's, if, if you have the awareness that this, this concert's happening, there's a certain Broadway show, a certain sporting event, then it's a question of what's the price point for people to be interested because usually that price plays a role. I'm interested in going, but not at $500. I might be interested at $100. So, you know, the, the awareness side, I think that for, for most events, there is strong awareness for at least for, for the headliner events. Um, I think the brand, the, the, the artists themselves have, have started to do a much better job engaging using social media and other platforms to engage with their fans so that they're creating more of that connection and more awareness. So they're, they're also helping, um, you know, on, on the marketing side. Um, so I, I think that, that what, where we can sit from a data perspective is when you look at, and we're starting to do this type of analysis, you look at a specific date with a specific, you know, like even if you look at the weather for a specific day and you look at how many events are on, you know, the market, um, let's say New York City. I mean, let's say today, today is December the 3rd. So you could see December 3rd, right? So on a regular, uh, Tuesday, um, how many, how many events are there of stadium capacity? Let's say 500 or more. How many seats are, are out there on the market? How many seats are being sold? And what is the correlation between too many events or so many different options as it pertains to pricing? That's, that's a question also that's beyond just looking at it from a one event, you know, lens. Um, so I, but I, I think that, that generally speaking, it seems like there has been a continued progression in marketing because of all the digital platforms that are out there and the connections that, that, that fans have with the content that they want and with, with what they're interested in. Yeah. Uh, and you, you talked about having a hypo or you didn't say it specifically, but I'll put this word in, in your mouth, which is that, um, you, you're saying look at the data for for the effort, uh, the effect of having a hypothesis. Now, do you like to go in when you're looking at this data? Do you like to look at it and already have the hypothesis, or do you formulate the hypothesis based on um, what you're looking at? So the answer is twofold. I mean, we're we're investing now more into AI and machine learning, um, but 
you know, we're, we're still finding that where those tools are best used is where you have, you do have a good hypothesis. And a hypothesis is usually based off of, you know, logic first and some data. And then you can test that on a much larger scale by using technology. Um, but, but I think still the, the human brain, I guess, if you will, um, you know, for, for people that understand a particular problem, you will usually be able to collectively hypothesize something that makes sense and then test that. And if it doesn't work, move on to what else? Another hypothesis. I think that so far in, in this area, that has been um, our approach, but we are still, you know, just starting to get our, our feet wet with, um, with machine learning and AI. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, and I learned a lot about it on my recent trip to Australia because I traveled around, uh, the, the, the country, well, around the world now at this point with, uh, Einar, who is the, um, CEO of ActivityStream. And they use a lot of AI to help in a different way than you, uh, understand consumer behaviors and help people make better, not just pricing decisions, but really marketing decisions. And mm-hmm. it's like a really, really interesting thing because, if you are really smart about either like the way you look at the data like you did before, right? December 3rd in New York City, a Tuesday night, Lion King tickets are going to be a pretty good bet if you're a, bo- a broker buying tickets. Uh, Lion King's great. Um, has been for about 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, but it, it's interesting because if you ask good questions of your data, then you get really great answers. And one of the concerns I have, though, is that people are just sort of leaping into the data with, without asking great questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from your point of view, right, because, you know, you, you gave a very specific example, um, you know, how do you m- make it so that people understand they ask better questions of their data? Because I think that's one of the issues that people have with using the data effectively is that they don't know how to ask questions of it. And I, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very, uh, very important point. I, I think one of the things that we're focused on, we've done, and we're, we're trying to continue to do it more, um, and continue to do it stronger and better is putting out different content that people will look at, people will want to learn and study, and that th- those different types of content pieces will make them think, wow, and they'll apply it to a different scenario. So like whether it's, oh, you know what, taking the last three years of Thanksgiving tickets for the Detroit Lions and looking at that data in, you know, when they were, uh, six and six, when, you know, different records, trying to understand things from a corollary perspective. And then that, if you give a good scenario that someone can relate to, that oftentimes will lead them to think, well, that's interesting. What if I, what if I looked at this in a different way? So what we're trying to do is A, put out content that, that spawns the, the thought and the creativity. Um, and creative problem solving, and then also giving them the tools um, that they have at their disposal to be able to study the data in the right way. And part of that is obviously making sure you have, you know, huge quantities of data, but it's also making sure that it's, you know, presented to them in a way that they can analyze properly. Yeah, contextual data is going to be the, the real winner here. And so, you know, if you have the content, you have the tools, you know, hopefully you're going to be creative enough because, um, I think that's really where you will enable yourself to differentiate from other brokers or from other people who are trying to create value in the ecosystem is by having context and having a point of view, right? And, you know, both of us have points of view. So, I mean, we understand that, that thing pretty well. Um, but what that kind of brings up too is that 
there's sort of a new breed of broker that's come around where these tools and this content and contextual data and all of these things make a lot more sense. Um, typically, they're going to be a little bit more tech savvy, um, and they're going to be have a little bit different point of view. You know, how are the, this new? How is this new breed of broker kind of impacting the the secondary market? And I guess the whole ticket market, for for that matter. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there was a great article that uh, that was actually just put out on the Atlantic um, on it was November twenty sixth that that, that that there was a. Uh, talked about the new ticket scalpers are young, unashamed, and very online. That was the, the title of the, uh, the article. And, um, you know, we've seen it a lot with some of uh, partners that we have. We have partnerships with uh, Ticket Flipping and Ticket Resale Team, um, which are great companies that provide educational tools um, to this new breed of brokers. And so, you know, what we're seeing, so we've been seeing this now for about, I would say, a year and a half, um, where, you know, a lot of very young um, you know, young 20s and sometimes even younger, um, you know, uh, th- they're coming into the market because there's a very strong emotional connection, first and foremost, to the asset. So, like, you know, th- there's a lot of um, there's a lot of opportunities out there to to buy and sell inventory, you know, e-commerce, sneakers, whatever. Right. And um, I think that the emotional connection that uh, that the consumers today have with their favorite artists or with their favorite sports teams, that is a very strong emotional connection. I think that is a big part of this, in my opinion. I also think that they're they're very tech savvy, um, and so I think that where this, if you kind of had to boil it down to what's happening here, is that there is an arbitrage opportunity that they're finding for an educated consumer versus a non-educated consumer. And this new breed is really trading the spread between what they're able to capture by being an educated consumer and a non-educated consumer. Now that's not true of everything. Sometimes it's luck on, you know, it, did I get in line first at the, uh, at the on sale? Um, but they're also, you know, it, it just general arbitrage between Ticketmaster and the secondary market on the primary to the secondary. And they know, they understand how the markets actually behave. That is is leading them to um, to, to opportunities, and so you, we're, we're finding a lot more entrants coming into the market this way, um, and a lot of them grow very very fast and become brokers, you know, just like everybody else in the market. Um, so it's it's interesting. I think a lot of what, what's happened also is that, for example, um, the bot the bot act um, has it, and and different legislation that have that has restricted um, bots from being used and has really to a large degree, taking care of that. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but to a large degree, it, it has really helped. And that inventory that was, you know, once moving all to just a very, very few um, subset of, of the market is now being spread out so that these new entrants have an opportunity to participate. Same thing also with, you know, different things that Ticketmaster is doing and what the artists are, are doing as well, um, verified fan and, and things of that nature. Um, that also creates some of the uh, some of the opportunity, um, but that's that's how that's how we've we've kind of seen it over the last you know year or so. Yeah, and I think that one of the big opportunities for anybody, which you know, I, I, the the Atlantic article I'm, I'm, I'm included in the Talking Tickets newsletter, um, but the, this idea of understanding how the market's going to behave, this is something that my friend Mike Guffrey talks about all the time, and I think he's talked about it uh, on every time he's been on the podcast. It's that like. You got to understand exactly how the market's going to behave and, you know, put your inventory and your marketing efforts uh, behind those points where there is the opportunity to capture 
some of these purchases. And I think that's one of the huge opportunities that all this stuff you're talking about uh, with data and using the data better or making better pricing decisions can really be captured because a lot of times the on-sale date is a huge opportunity, right? And then there's certain going to be certain PR or storytelling parts in the cycle that are going to be really huge. And it seems like people just don't necessarily recognize what those points are. It's like they don't understand the arc of this, the event sale process. Um, and that's what these new, like, you know, some of these new brokers do really, really well is they just understand the ups and downs of the market. So they, Hey, look, I'm going to pull back on this because for the next three weeks, there's nothing going to happen anyway. Sure. And that's actually another part of the, part of the market right now that we're seeing a lot more is secondary to secondary. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of categories of secondary to secondary, but for, for brokers, for example, that they bought a huge position for whatever, you know, whatever tour just went on sale and they, you know, will sell whatever chunk they can over that three to four day period post the public on sale until the lull. And then at that point, they're, they might be willing to sell at cost or even below cost because they don't want to hold on to their capital for another three to five months. And so brokers are willing to trade that. So sometimes it's, there, there's, I think, a mix of both not understanding the data, but also there is, there are brokers that do understand it, but that, that their model is different. And so if you have two different types of brokers that have the same understanding, but they have different business models, one wants to churn and burn and they'd rather, you know, sell at 10 to 12%, but continue to turn over their capital multiple times versus someone that just wants to make only 20 to 25% margin, that still creates opportunity where they can basically trade with each other. And we're seeing a lot more of that happening on the secondary as well. Yeah, that's a, that area of the secondary to secondary or some of the people who are operating in the lower margins, that's like a really interesting thing that's going on. Um, and, you know, I've had a chance to learn about it a little bit more over the last year. And it's like a really, um, you know, it is interesting because, you know, the cost of capital is a real consideration for a lot of people. And I don't think that all the time it's necessarily given the full weight of attention that it deserves. Um, but let me kind of shift on you just a little bit because you brought up, you, you, you brought up a, a couple of ideas and I kind of want to uh, focus this last little bit on how all of this stuff is going to impact the primary market. Right. And, uh, you know, cause there's been a lot of stuff going on. You talked about verified fan earlier. We talked about consolidation and consolidation being a tool to control pricing and control the flow of inventory and price floors and all these fun things, you know, where is all this stuff going in your point of view? You know, like what are, what are some of the, we're coming up on 2020 and, uh, you know, I'll start doing my annual, um, you know, predictions and review things going, coming up, but where do you see things going? You know, especially as like in, in returns of like the, the primary market and trying to capture every last cent that, uh, in every, op, in, you know, in every event and every game or in every concert. Sure. That was sure. an artful question. <laughs> sure. No, I, 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 it's, a, it's a great question. Almost a monologue. <laughs> if, if I knew the answer, you know, uh, clearly, then, uh, you know, I think that I'd be doing something else. But, um, the, the, the best that I can, the best that I can hypothesize from the understanding that I do have of the market, um, is that the primary, simply put, I think is going to follow the content rights holders. Well, cause what is the primary? Right. The primary, if you look at Ticketmaster and, you know, access and whatever, if you look at, you know, any of those outlets, um, at the end of the day, they're there to service their customers who are the content rights holders. 
So the primary market of exchanges will follow the content rights holders. Now, where will the content rights holders go to the future? I do think that what we're seeing is that they are, and you see that with sports teams first, that they are the ones that um, that first said, you know what, we understand how much margin we're losing. And by the way, I think a lot of that has to do with the data that they were able to gather from the relationships that they have with different exchanges. Um, and so they understood more, right, what the opportunity cost was and how much they were leaving on the table. And that's why they acted first. I think that um, that artists are also understanding that better now. And I, I don't think, though, that the reaction has been the same primarily because I think they are much more concerned about the brand protections even more than the teams. And so I don't, I don't think that there is a major shift amongst artists from what I get from the people that I talk to. And I'm not in the primary nearly as much as probably you and others are. Um, but it does seem from the people that I'm talking to that that is the way that they feel is that the artists are not they're not like jumping on capturing every dollar. They want to be able to make sure that on the primary that they are dynamically pricing better so that they are not leaving huge more huge amounts of money on the table. But I, I think that they're okay with leaving some margin for brokers as long as they serve that role of protecting the brand, of laying off risk of getting their money up front. The other thing that's very, very different here is how convoluted the um, the music space is when it comes to ticketing. So, for example, you know, there are so many different types of relationships that a promoter can have with their ticketing platform and that they both have with the venue and how they have that back with the artist. So, as a result, the a lot of times, whether it's Live Nation, the promoter, or the manager, whoever's in charge of pricing, they're the ones that are lay, laying off the risk, right? Not the actual artist. Now, there's a rev share component and other dynamics that still make them care about it, but it's not to the same extent because to, to a large degree, they've already captured a lot of their money up front. So then it becomes the question of whoever's pr- taking that risk, in this case, the promoter, right? Of, of capturing a lot more of that margin. But this, that, that's why that's different than a sport, very different than a sports team. And that's why I think that's you know, a reason, at least, as to why it has not moved in the same direction as fast. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that as well, because there's a, there, and there's a clear line, right? There is, you see the, some of the artists that have done a historically a better job of building a relationship with their, their fan base, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the classic example is the Grateful Dead. Um, the current example would probably be someone like Pearl Jam. Uh, they don't need any help from the secondary market whatsoever. Right. They, they absolutely, they can sell whatever they want to, right. Whenever they want to, uh, they've done a great job. But then you see the other examples, which is like, and I know a great example of this was Katy Perry the last time she went on tour, um, which is like she, she very upfront, probably protecting the brand. Somewhere in the middle is Taylor Swift, mm-hmm. right. And she, you know, she had done a great job of developing her brand. And I think that like some of those actions she's taken with this current album are a direct reflection of I was right and she was wrong. Uh, because like some of the things that gimmicks she pulled with the verified fan and the boosts and all these things, I think it had a really bad impact on her, on her brand and her relationship with her fans on the last sure. tour when she was like manipulating the, and I'm not saying, I guess dynamically would be the term you'd use, but you know, she was trying to tricking her fans. Like you got to buy the boost, you got to do this, got to do that. Um, and you're going to get the best opportunity at tickets. And then she'd sell tickets right next to them at deep, deep discounts, which is like a, a very bad 
move, right? Uh, that'll be, uh, let me plug my uh, upcoming intakes thing, discounts or don't discounts. Uh, I'm not, that's a joke. Um, but, right. you know, but, you know, what, how do you come back from something like that? Like, if, let's say if you're, you, you, you do, you know, you, you, you take one, you pick one side or the other, you know, where is, where's the line? Like, what's the right way to approach it? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, and I know it's going to be artist by, uh, by artist, right? <laughs> I mean, you got to put out really good music on a consistent basis, which, you know, she's able to do. So, um, you know, she's she's got a strong fan base. And she, like, listen, from a business perspective, how much money did she make on the 2018 tour? A hundred something million dollars. I mean, it was ridiculous how much, how much further ahead she was versus anybody else. Um, there was a cost to that. And I think that is really the, that balance is what we kind of spoke about earlier. It's the same balance with sports teams. It's a, it's a, it's a question of protecting the brand. What, what is the cost to having, capturing more dollars today, even if there was a clear path to do it, but at the expense of being perceived in a certain way that's, that's negative and not creating the same um, brand connections for people that wouldn't be able to afford it at a certain price point. Um, so, you know, listen, I'm not, I'm not in the artist world. Obviously, I think that, uh, you know, that, that's something that they continue, that, that artists that are doing this will continue to have to, have to ask for themselves. I think that one of the differences, by the way, though, for a sports team and an artist is that they don't have the same longevity, right? So they don't necessarily have to look at something in 10, 15, 20 here, um, cycles. They can maybe look at it in a shorter period and that might also influence their decision. Yeah, that, I mean that's that's true. It's all. I mean, it goes back to a word you used earlier, which is context, right? The the decision, the context that you make your decision in is very important, because you know if you're an artist, you know you're looking at you you have a career. If you're trying to have a long career, you, you know you maybe have twenty or twenty five years in front of you. If you are a you know a, a boy band, right? You might only be looking at a timeline of, I need to make all of my money in this four or five years because right. I can't necessarily guarantee it. If you're a team, right? And you're rebuilding, you might be like, let me see, how do I just hang on for the next two or three years while prospect, while I get all my prospects together, right? And, and, and the context of these things is very, very important. And I only use the examples of Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, and Pearl Jam, just because I know that those are very familiar to people. Um, sure. But, but to your point, though, Dave, I mean, like, Pearl Jam's been around for a lot longer than, than the others, right, than the others. And, I mean, I, I think that, like, that's where brands like, you know, Metallica, if, you, if you're able to, like, be successful for 30 years, I, I do think that that's something that some some artists now are starting to think about as they think about their life cycle of, of how long they're going to be out there making money on tour um, and, and, how, and, and the long-term effect of that revenue. But I do think that, that you bring up that, that point about a, a boy band, for example, like that would be a very big difference, right? BTS might not yeah. be around in three years. That, that's right. That's right. So, so I, 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 and I, and I think that that, that certainly is, is going to have an effect on the way that different artists will look at the, at the space and, and, and ticketing. Yeah, no, it's great. And you know what was what was, came, was awesome that came out of this was you talk about protecting the brand, and nobody really talked. And I'm the only one who usually talks about protecting the brand all the time. Um, yeah, so that was really great because most of the time when I'm, uh, I don't think that people pay that nearly enough attention, right? Uh, the, all the ideas about not discounting or controlling the way you discount or controlling where your inventory comes because of brand protection. If people only got that out of this conversation, I think they would have like got their money's worth out of the podcast today. But Sam, where yeah. can, where can we point people to, so if they want to find out more about what you're up to? 
Uh, they can go to our, our website, brokergenius.com. Uh, they can certainly reach out to, uh, to anybody if they want to have a conversation to, to sales at brokergenius.com. Uh, and uh, certainly anybody on, on my team would be happy to, uh, to talk to them and, and educate them on, uh, on what we do. Yeah, and don't forget the at Broker Genius t- on Twitter as well, because you know you, you do a great job of tweeting out stuff and engaging with folks there as well. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Dave. Hey, you know I'm, I'm here for you. I'm nothing but a marketer, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yes. All right, Sam. Thanks so much for doing the podcast, man. All right, you too, Dave. Good talking to you. What did you think of my conversation with Sam Sherman? Let me know by sending me an email at my name, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. You can visit my website. It's DaveWakeman.com where you can find out what I'm up to. There is a blog. There is uh, links to media appearances. There are client lists, uh, ideas, all kinds of great stuff. Visit DaveWakeman.com. You can connect with me on the social media. You can find me by searching my name, Dave Wakeman, on LinkedIn. And you can follow me on Twitter where I'm at David Wakeman. I should probably check because it's after January or December 10th. That at Dave Wakeman Twitter handle may have freed up and I didn't get it. That would make me mad. Um, as always, I would love it. If you would subscribe to the Business Fun Podcast, if you dig what I'm doing, I'd love it if you share an episode with your colleagues, your friends, people you think might learn something from some of these conversations like the one uh, today with Sam Sherman or the one recent, recent ones with Tammy Gaw, uh, Martin Gameltoff, Richard Howell, um, Simon Mab, Kat Spencer, um, any of these people, Derek Palmer, tons of great content. If you think somebody's going to gain something and learn something from it, I'd love it if you'd share it with them. Uh, I dig it if you'd subscribe, and if you would leave a review, it helps. All these things move me up in the rankings, and they help make sure that people discover the Business of Fun podcast. As always, I want to thank Booking Protect for being fantastic partners uh, in all these different things that I do. Um, you should be checking out Simon and Kat uh, at BookingProtect.com to find out how you can partner with them. Uh, make sure you come check us out at Intix in New York on the 20th to the 23rd of January. Um, and spoiler alert, um, if I get my act together, uh, starting on Monday, I think we're going to have a little surprise giveaway for people who sign up for the Talking Tickets newsletter, which you can get by clicking on the link at my news uh, on my website at DaveWakeman.com. Uh, as always, I want to thank you for being here and being a part of the Business of Fun podcast. If you have ideas, questions, comments, potential guests, send them to me in the, uh, at an email, david, davewakeman.com. Until next time, I'll talk to you soon. Take it easy. Bye.